Good evening and welcome again into the house of the Lord as we again hear from our God concerning the matter of forgiveness. And though it may seem something that we understand, it is nevertheless something that we need to hear again and again. And so we will be turning in God's word to consider that matter and what it means for us. I'd ask you to stand as we hear the call to worship from Psalm 32 this evening with that theme. There the psalmist writes, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you who have been forgiven the iniquity of your sin. Congregation, and whom is your help? He greets you this evening to those who've been called, who are loved by God the Father and kept by Jesus Christ. Mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance. Amen. Let's turn in our hymnals to number 253. God, all nature sings thy glory. God, all nature sings thy glory and thy works proclaim thy might. Ordered vastness in the heavens, ordered course of day and night, beauty in the changing seasons, beauty in the storming sea, all the changing moods of nature, praise the changeless trinity. We're going to sing those four stanzas of number 253.
Our psalm selection this evening is Psalm 130, page 518 in your Bibles. It has as its theme as well the matter of forgiveness. When we lose our awareness of who God is and of his glory and of his splendor, of his perfections and of his holiness, we also lose an awareness of our need to be forgiven. James Boyce pointed this out some years ago when he said, our problem today is that most of us don't have much awareness of sin. We live most of our lives with very little awareness of God, and where God has been abolished, an awareness of sin is inevitably abolished also, because sin is defined only by relationship to God. Scriptures make clear that we are those who are to be rightly related to God, and what breaks that relation, what hinders that fellowship is our sin. And the one who is truly blessed is the one who is forgiven, as we heard in the call to worship, Psalm 32. And here, the psalmist marks out the fact that God's forgiveness is thorough. There's no sin that is outstanding. He says, with you there is forgiveness. It is a complete forgiveness. There is no sin that is outside of uh, Christ's sacrifice for sin. And it is now And forever, there is forgiveness, not there will be or there has been, but your forgiveness is for now, that we might know peace, that we might have hope. And what do we wait for? We wait to see the consummation of the relationship that we have with the Lord. Here it says, the, the psalmist says, I'm waiting for the Lord as the watchman wait for the morning. He's not waiting for forgiveness. He knows that that is For certain in Christ, what he's waiting for is that he might see his maker and his savior in rich relationship. So let's think about that as we hear these words from Psalm 130. Psalmist writes, Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him there is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Psalmist sees that, or knows that personal forgiveness, and he points his uh, fellow uh, pilgrims to the Lord as well. Look to the Lord for forgiveness. We are to encourage each other in the forgiveness that we have in Christ looking to him. Let's respond with number 130 in our hymnals, 130 selection A, as we sing these words, Lord, from the depths to you I cry, the four stanzas of number 130 selection A.
Let's go to the Lord now in time of prayer. O Lord, from the depths we cry to you as the psalmist has set before us that example. When we know the depth of our sin, we cry out to you, asking you for forgiveness. We know that you will give ear to us and that you will give attention to our voice for the sake of your dear Son, that when we when we cry to you, when we pray to you, we will be heard. We humbly glorify you in the matter of salvation, for we know that our sins are great, that your grace and your mercy are greater, greater than all our sins. We do not want to take your grace for granted, however, but listen to your word, which calls us to repent to believe, to share that good news with others, to those around us, to exercise forgiveness even as we have been forgiven. Give us ears to hear that tonight in instruction from your word, that though this is a familiar doctrine to us, that we yet need to hear that. Give us hearts unburdened as we look to the cross of your Son. Give us a strong assurance of faith that with you there is forgiveness, that you may be feared, that you may be loved and served and worshipped. Father, we pray that for all those here, for those that are not gathered here, those young people and older, that together we would understand how grateful we ought to be for this forgiveness. We pray that those who are not walking with you would look to you for forgiveness and be led by you to return and come and worship with us. Lord, give us hearts that worship in purity tonight, that is, aware of our sin, not thinking only of others and what they need to do, but to have a clear understanding of our need of your grace and that as you promise to speak to us through your word, that we would hear your voice tonight. Lord Jesus, as the good shepherd, may we hear your voice as the sheep who are yours hear your voice and follow you. We ask that you would be with us in the week ahead, that as we again seek to live not for ourselves, but for you, our Lord and Savior, by the Holy Spirit, we would be growing in our understanding of what we, what we ought to do, how we ought to speak, how we ought to be courageous in speaking the truth. We pray for those who are calling others around the world to that task. This, this evening we pray for Reverend Brown and his work in Milan, Italy. We ask, Lord, that you would continue to build that church that in that global city where there are so many different nations gathered because of the industry there and the opportunity there, that you would grant this small body of believers great impact to make disciples, to reach those who do not know you. 
We pray that you would send more missionaries, Lord, to Italy and that there would be the establishment of a denomination, confessional denomination in that country as a result as churches are raised up. For the Brown family, we pray for, the, for them as Reverend Brown asks for his son Ian to find a single Christian friend. Lord, how important that is, how we yearn for that as Christian parents, that our children would find those who walk in the right way and encourage each other. We pray that our young people would be encouraging each other, walking in a very vibrant and active faith, that they would be exercising the gifts that you give to them, that they might be preparing themselves for greater service as they seek to be faithful with what you've given them. May we be able to say that is our desire for each, each one of us here in our own hearts. Hear us, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Number 173. It's the song that we sing now, number 173. Almighty God, your word is cast. As we think of that seed being cast upon the ground, that we would ask the Lord to cause it to take heart in our, or take root rather in our hearts, that we might bear much fruit. Those four stanzas, as we stand to sing number 173. Be considering Lord's Day 51 of the Heidelberg Catechism tonight, page 895 in our hymnals. We'll read that responsively, so I'd invite you to turn there so that you can respond with the answer. And then we'll be looking at Luke 11, verse 4, and Matthew 18 this evening. Luke 11, page 869, and Matthew 18... 
page 823. Always been struck by these words of this particular petition. Lord, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. In it, we're... There's a plea that God would forgive us of our sins because it is against God that we sin. And in it, there's also a commitment on our parts that we would forgive as we have been forgiven. That is not something that is easy for us to do. Indeed, it's natural for us to think that others owe us and we, before we will do anything, need to have them take the first step or to apologize or ask for forgiveness for something they have done, when in fact Scripture sets before us that attitude, that forgiving spirit that ought to be characteristic of us at all times, not with a qualification of, well, if they ask for forgiveness, we will have a forgiving spirit. Now, we're to have that heart of forgiveness. Our sins, the psalmist says, Psalm 51, are against you, against you, and you only have I sinned, O Lord, and therefore we ask him to forgive us, for we sin against him every day in thought, word, and deed. His graciousness to us then should transform our hearts. When Jesus is asked by his disciples to teach them to pray, he, said, he says to them, when you pray, say, Father, forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. Then in, in question and answer 126, I ask you to respond with the answer. The question is, what does the fifth petition, petition mean? And we say together, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors means because of Christ's blood, do not impute to us poor sinners that we are any of the transgressions we do or the evil that constantly clings to us. Forgive us just as we are fully determined, as evidence of your grace in us, wholeheartedly to forgive our neighbors. We'll be turning to Matthew 18 a bit later, but this is the the organization of our sermon. First, the only sacrifice sufficient to cover all our sins, and then that Uh, recognition that sin still clings to us, and then finally, showing mercy as we have been shown mercy. Do we need to learn, dear people of God, do we need to learn about forgiveness? Do we need to hear about forgiveness again? The answer is absolutely, (laughs) because we so naturally are inclined, as I've already said, to think that we already understand forgiveness. We already understand the, the standards or the, uh, the, the, the way in which we ought to forgive, and yet every day our hearts tell us that we are those who are entitled to be forgiven or are to be uh, given something from others while we ourselves do not need to extend forgiveness to them. If secularism has had any success in our culture today, it's that notion that I don't need to ask forgiveness to anyone. I'm actually entitled to whatever anyone else would like to give to me. The world exists for me. I say if secularism has 
had any success. That is, if we think only of this world, which we see happening in our culture today, not thinking about the vertical relationship with God, um, this notion of being, uh, having to forgive and to be forgiven is, is dying if it's not dead in our cultural discourse today. Far more we hear of people saying, well, I need reparations. I need to be uh, uh, reimbursed. I need to, I'm the one that needs to be given to. I don't have anything um, for which to, to ask forgiveness. And I certainly should not show forgiveness to the one who's not deserving of it. This notion that we understand who is deserving of forgiveness and who is not. In our desire to progress as a society, uh, we've convinced people that we need to do things differently. People are seen as existing to approve of personal desires, and if they don't, then we say they need to repent. I don't need to repent. I'm only living out what I believe to be my self-expression that makes me uh, uh, the happiest and makes me most fulfilled. And if they don't affirm that, then they need to repent because they are standing in the way of me being my truest self. Any of that vocabulary sound familiar? It should. We hear it every day. The only wrong that truly is committed is when others don't allow me to be who I truly think I am. Evolution in science has often been thought of, well, as we come from nothing, we're going to nothing, it's all by chance. Well, there's also evolution in the thought process in our world today, which says that we're evolving, that we need to get rid of that dark and ignorant way of thinking in the past and become better and become, and, and that's the thinking, we're just becoming better and better and, and more clear in our understanding of what it means to be true uh, humans to be, to be true to ourselves, and we can all have our opinions about what that looks like, but then if my desires cross your desires, then you have to give way to me. And there's a very individualistic way of thinking, and we think to ourselves, we don't owe anyone anything, it's others who owe us. We should never have to hear about personal sin, for that keeps us from being the best that we can be. Satan said something similar in the garden. He said, you can be God. You'd be much happier if you decide for yourself what works for you. Has that made us happier? (laughs) Hardly. We can simply look around us and see that we are, if anything, more miserable than we've ever been pursuing our wants and our desires and seeing that they come up short, that nothing of creation can satisfy what we have, uh, what we have need of, which is that, that need of God and right relationship with him. Now, evidence is not the way we measure truth, but it does very often reveal that something is wrong. When we look around and say, well, what, is, what do we see we can see very often that things are wrong. The Bible affirms that something's very wrong. And when we turn away from the Bible, of course, we don't uh, have that conclusion. We don't come to that conclusion. Back in the early 1900s, I think, I didn't look up the date per se, but 
G.K. Chesterton, the well-known writer, uh, saw a question in the London newspaper. It said, what's wrong with the world? And he responded a letter to the editor, and he said, I am. I am. It is my sin that contributes to what we see. And that is a humble and helpful perspective on ourselves. The Bible tells us that we're conceived in sin. We cannot live rightly. We owe God everything, yet we do not honor Him or give thanks to Him. You say, wow, this seems kind of a heavy means of, of looking at things. But I was thinking about this recently. We're, we're, we're hearing about revival happening in Asbury, Kentucky, and I was thinking about and looking back at what has caused revival to break out. And it's this, dear people of God, it is a clear doctrine of sin. A true revival is a understanding that I don't, God doesn't owe me anything, and yet he has graciously given me all things, and therefore I want to live for him. And there is a, there is a, 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 a newfound or a, a bold expression of repentance before God in true revival, and a focus on God and his commands, and upon God and his means of salvation through Jesus Christ. We can only hope and pray that that revival may indeed take hold in our country from coast to coast. What is man's sin? Well, it's a refusal to glorify God in everything. That's at the heart of of it all. Because that's the sin against the design of, that God has for us. He has made us for his glory. He makes that very clear in Isaiah 43. Well, how do we think about our sin? Well, we're guilty both for what we have done and what we've left undone for sins of commission and sins of omission. Our debt includes secret sins as well as public ones, deliberate sins as well as sins committed in ignorance. Our sins against others come from Our desire to live for self and not God. He's created us to love him, to love our neighbor. When all our sins are added together, it leads to an eternal debt that we owe to God. Something that we cannot pay back. We're obligated to keep God's law. Whenever we break the law, we become liable to its penalty. That is the wrath and curse of God. And when God opens our eyes to our sin, we learn that we must ask him to forgive us of our sins. And we could never earn that forgiveness. Jesus explains this in Matthew 18. I invite you to turn there if you desire to do that. Matthew 18, we're not going to read the entire parable. We're going to look at a, part, a portion of it, but that's the that's the passage that uh, I want us to consider. Jesus is explaining what the kingdom of heaven is like, and he explains that it's as a king who seeks to settle accounts with his servants. I pick it up in verse 23 of Matthew 18. Jesus said, therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. 
and as a significant understatement, and since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had, and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. Let's think about that for a few moments as we're thinking in this matter of forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. This is an unpayable account. 10,000 talents would have taken hundreds of thousands of years to pay off. Jesus is making the point that, that this is impossible to pay. And the servant says, well, just give me time. That's what I need. I need time. Those who are listening would obviously know that no time would give would be sufficient for this requirement before this individual. And what Christ is saying is that when he comes, he's going to measure the debt of all people. He will settle accounts with every person who's ever lived. Son of man comes to judge. There's not a single person who will be able to pay the debt of their sin. There's nothing to do with the time. The amount could not be paid back. The focus of the forgiveness then in verse, is in verse 27. It's out of pity for him that the master, the king, released the servant and forgave him the debt. And it was costly. He had to absorb that loss. How many of us today will be upset or bent out of shape, maybe we'd say, if someone owes us a small debt? God forgives a great debt. Our Father forgives our sin at great cost to Himself. It is only the death of His Son that could cover that debt. And we then, when we are asking God to forgive us our debts, we see this in the Catechism. Forgive us our debts means... Because of Christ's blood, do not impute to us, poor sinners that we are, any of the transgressions that we do. And the Bible makes very clear that God's means of salvation is sufficient. It says, now there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. His righteousness is reckoned to us that we might have right relationship with God, that we might not fear the coming judgment God's justice is satisfied in the gift of the Son of God. Just remember the the historical context of the writing of the Catechism. In the church at the time, there were all manner of teachings stating that, well, there there are certain works that you must do so that you can can be restored to God. And the Reformers were saying, well, no, the Scripture says there's no possible way that we can pay the debt that we owe. The only means by which... We can uh, uh, be saved is faith in Christ alone. He is the one to whom we must look. It is God who is rich in mercy, who provides his son for our forgiveness. The petition is so very powerful. Last week we looked at give us this day our daily bread or give us each day our daily bread. There we're asking for what we need for body. Provide for us our physical needs, all that which is needful. Here we're talking about eternality. We're talking about our souls which endure forever. 
Lord, forgive us our sins that we might be rightly related to you and live forever in your presence. But as we know, what is so very frustrating and at times troubling to our hearts is that sin continues to cling to us, doesn't it? When we say, forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors, we say, because of Christ's blood, do not impute to us poor sinners that we are any of the transgressions we do or the evil that constantly clings to us. We pray daily for the forgiveness of sins. We recognize that we sin against God every day. But, but aren't the sins of, of uh, believing sinners, past, present, and future, forgiven? Yes, they are. In Christ, we are declared just before God, declared righteous before Him. Well, why then do we need to continue to ask for forgiveness? Because of the evil that still clings to us, because of the sins that we commit yet each day, and our sin disturbs that relationship to the Father. Kevin DeYoung writes about this in his commentary on this question and answer. He says this, imagine your son is a paper route and you tell him, you must do your paper route. It's your job, not mine. One day he purposely skips the route to play with friends at school. You happen to notice the stack of undelivered papers, so you load up your car and deliver the papers for him. When he gets home, you want to talk to him. You're not going to disown him, but he has been disobedient, so there's a strain in the relationship. The parent-child relationship has been disturbed by the disobedience. Now, if the child is sorrowful and asks for forgiveness, the relationship is restored. If the child continues to refuse to obey without asking for forgiveness, the relationship becomes more and more distant. That's why we must continually come to God for forgiveness, asking him to forgive us. For what does the Lord say? A broken and contrite heart, O Lord, you will not despise. A broken, a contrite, a repentant heart you will not despise. God wants us to ask for forgiveness. He wants us to thank him for that forgiveness. If my conscience is working properly, I'm going to be troubled by my sin. The spirit living in me is the Holy Spirit. And I will be troubled by my sin. For even though I am in Christ, I still say and do and think things that are foul and corrupt and offensive to God. That's the point of John 1, or 1 John 1, where it says this, If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. We're only deceiving ourselves if we say, well, there's nothing in us that we need to ask forgiveness for. The catechism writers use Psalm 51 as one of the texts to which they turn when they're thinking about this matter of forgiveness. And there, David prays that God would forgive sin and cleanse from unrighteousness. Someone once said of David, when David composed the 51st Psalm, he was not on the throne as king, but as the soldier in the battlefield against sin. 
You see, sin is no respecter of persons. We're not above it. We don't rise above it. Our office, our place, our position doesn't mean that we're above sin. We're those who make request to our sovereign, to God, to have mercy on us. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sins. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, and you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And he goes on to say, therefore you are justified in your words, blameless in your judgment. He's justified to judge. Because he shows mercy, we then fight our self-righteousness and we fight to be soldiers who proclaim his mercy, who extend that mercy to others. And Jesus says the servant here in the story, turning back to Matthew 18, has been forgiven an infinite debt. And what does he do? He goes out to find a servant who owes him much less a payable debt. And he chokes him and refuses to extend patience or mercy to him. When the servants of the king see what he's done, they go to the king and the king declares that he has not understood his forgiveness, what he has been forgiven, and he throws him into prison until the debt has been paid, which we know it will not be paid. It is impossible. Where do we then fall on our knees? It is before the mercy of God, the grace of God. We extend that grace and that mercy to others. Think of the woman who was washing Jesus' feet in Luke chapter 7. There, he says, he tells the story of the fact that she understood how much she had been forgiven and her love, her, her care for Jesus shows that, whereas there were others at that meal who thought they had very little to be forgiven of and therefore they loved little. What is forgiveness? Well, in one sense, again, Kevin DeYoung says we should forgive all those who sin against us. We should not seek their harm. We should pray for them and desire their good. But in another sense, forgiveness can be granted only to those who seek it. That is, while we should always be ready to forgive, unless the other party is willing to repent, forgiveness cannot reach its full bloom. Forgiveness implies the restoration of a relationship. Without repentance, a broken relationship cannot truly be restored. So there needs to be, there needs to be a, a, a willingness to forgive, though it is hard to be reconciled to someone who refuses to ask for forgiveness. That doesn't change our hearts, that we ought to be ready to forgive and that we ought to forgive regularly those who sin against us. We don't wish them harm. We're not wishing them ill. We don't, wish them, uh, we don't wish the words upon them which they have spoken to us. Forgiveness does not mean that we are to remain in a situation where we are being harmed. Don't remain in an abusive relationship and say, well, I'm just simply going to forgive him or her and we'll just continue on in this relationship. No, that's not the call. If there is 
danger, then we ought to ask for wisdom from God and from other believers as to what to do, how to handle it, how to deal with it. But we ought to have a heart that is, I guess, disposed to forgiveness, if I can put it that way, that we're willing to lean toward forgiveness. There are four aspects of forgiveness that I want to leave with you tonight that are very helpful from Ken Sandy's book, The Peacemaker. He asks, or he makes the statement, when I forgive someone with God's help, I will make these promises. These are worth writing down or to think about as you consider forgiving someone. What does it look like? When I forgive someone with God's help, I will make these promises. First, I will no longer dwell on the incident. I won't dwell on it. I won't sit and stew over it. I will no longer dwell on the incident. Secondly, I will not bring up this incident again and use it against you, not as a, not as a club. Say, well, you remember what you said. You remember what you did. I'm forgiving someone. I'm not going to bring that incident up, bring it up over and over again to use it as manipulation or to remain or to give myself the upper hand. I will not bring up this incident again and use it against you. Third, I will not talk to others about this incident, going around trying to get people to agree with my position so that we might so, so-called gang up on the other person. Well, you know, I've talked to other people and they say you really did mess up and I don't know if I can forgive you. When I forgive someone with God's help, I will not talk to others about this incident. And fourth, I will not allow this incident to stand between us or to hinder our personal relationship. That can be a difficult one. But where there is forgiveness where there is someone, the other party is seeking to be forgiven, that we must say that with God's help, I will not allow this incident to stand between us or to hinder our personal relationship. How do I talk to the other person who has wronged me? Well, with God's help, I, I seek to move forward, a new start, a new beginning. I'm made new by God's grace and his mercy and I want then to live out of that newness, to move past the fault, to move past the sin. Remember what prompted this story that Jesus tells in Matthew 18. It's Peter's word. Peter comes to him and says, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? And as many as seven times, that, that perfect number, if I, if I forgive seven times, will that be the, will that be the, the right number? And Jesus says, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times or 70 times seven. The notion of don't, you're not keeping track. You're not keeping score to say, well, you know, I have this many points and you have that many points, so I'm still winning or I'm still the one that has control of the situation. Let me remind us of what Jesus teaches Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors means because of Christ's blood, do not impute to us, poor sinners that we are, all of the transgressions we do or the evil that constantly clings to us. It has a corporate aspect to it, doesn't it? But it has personal application. 
all of the sins that I do, all of the evil that constantly clings to me. And forgive us just as we are fully determined as evidence of your grace in us to forgive wholeheartedly those who have sinned against us. That is that transformation that God works in us. That as we have received mercy, we are those who want to extend it. May God help us to do that. Amen. Father in heaven, as we think upon this matter of forgiveness in a culture which doesn't think there is a place for it, where there is only a place to demand rights and entitlement, may that simple act of forgiveness, that simple conversation speaking about forgiveness, arrest people around us when they see us doing it, when they see us forgiving, when they see us asking for forgiveness, when they hear us talking about it. May it free their hearts from sinful self-righteousness and bring them to a place of humility where they would come before you and ask you to forgive. Lord, may we be such people. We know our sins are many and that evil continually clings to us. We long for that day when all that sin will be removed and we will fellowship one with another without our guards up, without any fear of what others think about us, and above all, without any fear of what you think of us, for we will know your love in a fuller sense. Help us to experience it now, that where there is a heaviness in our hearts because of our sin, that we would be unburdened as we look to Christ, in whom we find forgiveness and life. Hear us, we pray, for his sake. Amen. Our song is number 32, selection B. 32, selection B. The words of that psalm we heard at the outset, the call to worship, and it is about forgiveness. We're going to sing those words now. The five stanzas as we stand to sing 32, selection B.
Let's pray. Your Father in heaven, may we know the wonderful message of forgiveness from your word. We pray that through agencies like the Biblical Counseling Center, that those who have been hurt, those who have hurt others, might know that they can turn to you, dear Father, and receive forgiveness. We ask, O Lord, that we would all look to the balm in Gilead, the one who is given for our sin-sick souls, that we would be comforted in him. Hear us now as we give these offerings along with our prayers in Christ, who is our Savior and Lord. Amen. Let us stand and confess our faith together using the words of the Apostles' Creed found on page 851, the back of our hymnals, as we say together, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he shall come again in the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, in the life everlasting. Amen. Receive this parting blessing. Congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, in all your darkness and troubles, remember what you are and have. You've been loved with an everlasting love. You are supported by everlasting arms. You are recipients of everlasting life and heirs of an everlasting kingdom, all sealed and made sure by the blood of an everlasting covenant. Amen.